Hey folks, welcome back to the DC3 cast. I am Brian, with me as always are Zach and Vince. We're going to talk about the DC comics that were released on July 31st, 2019. We're going to start with American Carnage number 9, the final issue of the series, written by Brian Hill, illustrated by Leandro Fernandez. Um, Zach, why don't you start us off this week? What did you think about the finale of this book? Uh, I, I thought it was the only good book this week. Um, <laughs> oh, just kidding. Maybe. Not really. Not um, <laughs> no so um so i was a little bit behind on this book and so i had to i think i think the last issue that i had read was number six and so i kind of mainlined seven through nine mm-hmm. for this one and um i i will say that i liked this issue and i thought it was a, a good ending and i felt like it was probably the ending that brian that brian hill had planned all along but I do kind of feel like it. You you can see the the seams where it was kind of stitched together, and and it I assume because of the, it felt rushed. Like yes. the getting to the ending felt a little rushed. Um, but I thought that the ending rang true. Um, I thought it was really really well done. Um, really sad. Um. But uh, overall, I think that this miniseries is, was really successful in what it set out to do and is definitely, I, I think, the standout of this kind of um, rebooted Vertigo line RIP. It's, it's going to be remembered as the last good Vertigo book. Yeah. I, yeah, you're right. Holy right. shit, yeah. Even though it's not, like, I think, I do think um, a couple of the other ones that they launched alongside it uh, high level we're, goddess mode those books yeah yep yep exactly i i think those are good books i just think because of the circumstances i i feel like this one is just going to be the one that's the one that signaled the end of vertigo and it's going to be the one that people remember not only because it was the the first one to kind of end like just a week or two after that announcement came out uh but also how it was just so high quality from beginning to end and and uh, you know, said said something important in it too. You it know, took a lot of chances. Yeah, for sure, mm-hmm. for sure. And I love I love what it does to take some narrative chances at the end here, which is that like white supremacy is a, a tale as old as time in America, right? And and there's there's no sense at all in this issue. That you know, doing doing what Richard does solves the greater problem. Doesn't he's, solve he's, anything, really. Right. It. It. it yes. I, I think they make they make a little statement in the issue about how it's going to cause uh, Win. I can't remember his last name now, but Win Morgan. Win Morgan, like the mm-hmm. the bad guy in this. It it's going to cause him to duck into the shadows for a little while, or something like that. And that that stops the, his Senate run. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yep. Which is which is big, but in the grand scheme of things, yeah. Did it? You know, it's it's going to be a constant fight, right? And this is just one. This is just one little, relatively little story in the in the grand fabric of, I guess, American Carnage. I guess like the. That's what America is, right? You know. Yeah. <laughs> like, um. 
and it sucks and it very much speaks to what you know things that are going on today absolutely i wanted to highlight a couple of things that i thought were really interesting and bold storytelling choices in the book um the first is that you see uh rick it is right rick's the main character richard Richard. Mm-hmm. Richard. Rick, Rick, Rick Grayson. Rick Grayson. Yeah, Rick Grayson. Yeah. So you, you see Richard, like, say to the granddaughter to, um, I forget her name now. Is it Amy? Uh, I think it's Amy. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. He says to her, like, don't worry. You're going to see your mom soon. And typically, Richard's been an asshole, but he hasn't lied to the kid yet. And then he just goes and, like, kills her mother. Mm-hmm. And that that was a haunting passage. Just, like... You know, oh, so he's just he's just gonna lie and kill this kid's mom. That was a, that was a particularly tough to read section because that that kid did nothing wrong, you know, and and it's sort of reinforced later in the book. They say like that girl's gonna grow up just like her mother, and it just starts this cycle again, and mm-hmm. that was really heartbreaking. I also thought that um, there's a, there's a line and it's almost a throwaway line at the end at the funeral where they say like that the old man win dropped out of the race and he's truly mourning turns out he really loved his daughter i feel like that's a little bit of humanization even though it's said in a very off you know a sort of uh flippant way like it does show that the guy is not pure evil that there is something underneath that that has that could at least still like they can still feel love and still appreciate human relationship in that. And I feel like that's a bold choice because it's so easy to make this character into just a heartless demagogue that, that has no, that has, that has no positive uh, qualities. And I feel like Hill takes the time to just give him the slightest bit of humanity, which I, I just thought was, was, was a bold choice and a good choice. Yeah. Well, and it is a good choice because like the, I mean, the people who have these beliefs, no matter like how vile they may be are still human. And I, I would imagine except for like the most heinous of cases are capable of love and do treat certain people with love, but are, you know, that doesn't, it, it, it's almost kind of a, a reputation against those people too, like a repudiation to be like, you know, just because they are capable of love, it doesn't absolve them of, well, that, uh, yeah, yeah, that that's an interesting because I I read that a little differently, in that I read it as, uh, this is this just speaks to the way that, uh, you know, people people are like politicians or um, you know, public figures in America can be capable of like heinous, uh war crimes and, uh, you know, human rights crimes uh, throughout their work. And yet as soon as, like, someone gets sick or somebody dies or something bad happens or just they retire or something, everybody works to start polishing it up a little bit. You well, know what I mean? Read. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's that's yeah. what it came off as to me. And maybe I'm just a cynic or maybe I'm too – No, but, maybe but I, I think it says all those things. Sure. Yeah, and that's yeah. why Brian Hill, like I, I had heard you know, he had said that he wasn't planning on writing comics after 2019, but then he took that Hickman gig 
Right. So, <laughs> which why why wouldn't you? And I'm so glad he did. I, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't want him to quit. No, I really hope that he keeps writing comics forever because this is so good. And uh, we have to, before we talk about the very end, which I do want to talk about for a minute. Um, we need to talk about the art on this comic because mm. Leandro Fernandez does such incredible work throughout this entire series, but this issue in particular. He has to draw some pretty heinous shit. Mm. And he does so without it turning into a, car- a caricature of violence. Every violent action feels really earned and really, uh, and, and just feels real and visceral. And I, I thought it was just such a disturbing. Disturbing, yes. Not, you know. not glorified at all. Not, there's no like leering eye here or anything like that. No, this is all terrible. Yeah, and it's 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 illustrated just immaculately with no that's the wrong word for it because it's not immaculate it's ugly it's dirty but it's it's done just so perfectly and I really really hope that he gets a big gig someplace soon because god damn did he earn it on this on this book mm-hmm. yeah yeah and Dean White on colors too yep um he um. He is a color colorist that I feel like gets overlooked a lot in conversations these days. I, I I think the first thing I remember seeing him on and really taking note was when he did um he colored Jerome Pena's pencils in uh Uncanny X Force mm-hmm. and lo- loved his work there and um he he he's has a, a really moody um you know, lots of purples and blues and dark colors. That, that's kind of typically his his palette, and it, it works really, really well here. Um, yeah, this was a really beautiful book in in so much as even though a lot of the time it was horrifying, you know. Yeah, I I really hope that the shuddering of vertigo doesn't lead to these type of stories going away. But I fear it will. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I don't see like like there is that one book coming out from uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson with the the uh, like the fantasy book. Yeah, which the is Last just King, so weird. Maybe the Last King, something like that. Yeah. Um, it's just so weird to me that that's even coming out. But I don't see. Maybe maybe because it's fantasy. Maybe because it's like. Conan adjacent or something, you know, Yeah. but I don't see like a place for a gritty noir or a gritty, you know, crime drama or whatever you want to call it among this, among this lineup, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with DC characters, you know? Yeah. It seems like black label is really there to tell mature versions of superhero stories. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm going to miss this sort of stuff. But excellent job to everyone involved with American Carnage. So great. And just, you know, when this comes out in trade, I'm going to make a statement right now. When this comes out in trade, I'm going to buy a copy to give away on the show. Ooh, all right. So, you know, if you haven't read this, folks, and you're interested, wait a few months. You can win one on the show right here. Cheers. I just took a swig of my beer. Cheers (laughs) to uh, American Carnage. All right, let's um, let's get into Batman Last Night on Earth, book two, 
written by Scott Snyder, illustrated by Greg Capullo. Um, you know, obviously, guess who just came back today? You know, the, the, the boys are back in town. This this creative team is is obviously doing exactly what they want to do on this title. Um, and I think that there are good things and bad things about that. Vince, I want to start with you, and then I know Zach has a a spicier take on this uh, issue. <laughs> a spicier take. Yeah. Um. So, uh, with the exception of a, of a a couple things that bug me a little, I really like this, and I think that this is we're we're gonna see examples. Uh. I think in this very episode, maybe, uh, of Scott Snyder taking his like ability to escalate or to show you an improbable, ridiculous situation to lengths that are just uh, annoying or unnecessary. And I don't think that really happens in Last Night on Earth. If I have any criticisms of this comic, it's that there's there's a couple th- drops, a couple info dumps that he does in this that are so interesting and then barely explored. And so they end up, I, I, they end up, you know, at, at once intriguing me, but also making me wonder why they're even here. And we can talk a little bit about that in depth, but, but for the most part, I really like this because I I think it's Snyder and Capullo having fun again, just like they did on metal, which I mostly liked. Um, and I'm also pleasantly surprised that this isn't just the last bat, the last Batman story, but it's like, it encompasses the whole DCU basically. And with a, with a focus on Batman, sure. But I'm glad that, that Snyder is including all those justice league characters in this and not just retreating back to, to just another bat thing. Um, but Zach, lay it on us. What? Why do you hate well, this? Well, okay, I don't hate it. So, <laughs> but the thing that you said about introducing a lot of ideas through exposition, things, ideas that are very interesting, um, just so many ideas, uh, enough ideas to fill an entire ongoing or like an entire universe, really, you know, the, the amount of ideas and things that Snyder and Capullo um, throw out there um, kind of makes me wish that this book was, was longer that it had. Maybe, maybe this could have been a, a 12 issue thing where we could have gotten to see some of these things. Um, but because we don't, and in some cases we don't even see them, you know, it's not even an image on the page. It's just, it, it's just words. We flew through uh, Fawcett city and then you yeah. don't see anything. Yeah, yep. exactly. Um, and, and so because of that, I definitely do question why, why is this here? Um, this, this feels superfluous other than to, to, to be intriguing. Um, but it, it doesn't necessarily really contribute anything to the story at hand. Um, and, and because of that, this feels really, uh, kind of, kind of padded in, in a way I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't say it's slight, um, because there, there is quite a bit going on here. Um, 
but it also doesn't feel terribly unique either. Um, I I feel like we're maybe at a point where we're having a little bit of diminishing return in turn in, in terms of the the Snyder Capullo bat collaboration. Uh, as usual, I fall somewhere in between you two, um, and I really do with this one. There is some stuff. There, there are some ideas in here, like Zach said, that I want to read that issue. You know, I want to read the issue that's telling us that story. And one of my big problems with this book thus far is I am far more interested in what happened to the original Batman that led to all of this than I am to what's going on with this current Batman clone that is sort of dealing with the aftermath. I think that the original story would have been much more interesting to tell than this one. And I understand why, like, if, if the function of this story is to close out the Snyder Capullo Batverse, which I will believe when it never actually happens. When one of them is, <laughs> is in the grave, I will believe that this is the last... Snyder Capullo bat story. And that's no offense to them. Just people say that stuff all the time and it doesn't really happen. Um, but so if, if your point is, you know, we got to end this, we have to end our bat collaboration, then I understand why you have to tell this story. But in terms of just telling a good comic story, I really just want to know what happened, you know, 20 years ago or whatever it was. To me, that is that is as or more interesting than what we're getting here. And I think that there's a lot of obnoxious Joker stuff that happens here. And again, Joker's Joker's supposed to be obnoxious. I understand that. But at a certain point, it's just like, shut the fuck up, Joker. I am, I am done with this. Um, But I will say a couple, I want to, I want to point to a couple of things that I really enjoyed or that I, I I just think are worthy of discussion. Uh, The first is that, I think it's really interesting how fast and loose this is playing with current continuity. And it can do that because it's taking place in this undisclosed future, right? But the one example I already mentioned is Fawcett City. Fawcett City isn't a thing anymore in DC. Now Shazam is from Philadelphia. So it's it's weird that they're like taking this old out of continuity city and throwing it in here. But I guess when you're Scott Snyder, you can you can do pretty much whatever you want with this stuff. Um I love the idea of Batman being like, this is weird ground we're standing on. And Wonder Woman was like, yeah, we're sitting on the Spectre. <laughs> yeah. I, I really enjoyed That was a great page. I really enjoyed that. Um, and then I wanted to talk about something I'm glad didn't happen, although it happened in just kind of a lamer way. As soon as they introduced the Omega character, I was like, we're, we're going to be tricked and this is going to be Dick Grayson. Because everybody Joker's loves trick. Dick Grayson being the, the villain lately, uh, being the cop. Like, everybody loves that Dick Grayson, and I don't think that's a very good characterization. So I was really glad when he wasn't Omega, but he's still a, a, a Court of Owls talon and seemingly on the wrong side of, of all this stuff. And I just ask, why are we so obsessed with making Dick Grayson a bad guy? Well, can I interject? Sure, I- yeah. I wonder what if, and maybe if there's something in the text that contradicts this and I just don't remember it, uh, let me know. 
but what if the Court of Owls are now, what if they've retreated or what if they're even like a resistance? Oh, that'd be great to, then. Sure. To the Omega because I, I kind of got that impression, actually. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily in the text per se, but I I do think that I that's don't think where they're working for Omega. Yeah. I don't right. either. Well, good then. Then I'm then I'm glad to hear that makes me happy. Because Omega's Damien or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it's not Dick, it's Damien, right? Or or Omega is the original Batman somehow didn't die oh. and still cloned him. Oh. Yeah. Or it's Babs. Why not? Yeah. Or or Tim. Or, or Tim. evil evil Tim is a thing too, you know. So yeah. Or Kate. Kate became like Kate. a Kate oh, became yeah. a cop in that one. Uh, yeah. I feel like it's going to be something though that um let's be real, it's Lincoln March. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Gotta uh, go back to the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. That is the most Snyder thing that it could be. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it's the Batman who laughs. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> it probably is. God damn you, Vince. No, no, I'm not putting that out in the world, no. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, did you have anything else to say about that, Brian, or... Um, not particularly. To me, this does feel like Snyder and Capullo having so much fun. I mean, there are definitely characters that Snyder, I mean, that, that Capullo is drawing just because he wants to draw them. Like, there's there is no reason on Earth for Stargirl to show up in that double-page spread, but there she is. Like, and you can just tell Capullo was like, that's probably a cool costume, I want to draw that, you know? It's mm-hmm. cool to see them just having fun. Because I think that when Snyder has fun, we get the best Snyder stuff, typically, uh, but I don't think that this is even coming close to the best Snyder stuff thus far. Um, you know, it, it's it's hard because when we see what he's doing in Justice League, you can see that he still can be really effective and really fun and not take himself too seriously and not get too grim dark. All that is very much on display in Justice League. But his bat stuff recently has just seemed very, very uh, dark for dark's sake at times. Yes. Yeah. I yeah. I don't know if I would say that about this, but we'll talk about a book that that I do say that about. Oh yes, and, for sure. and I would say it's probably more that book than this book. Yeah. Um, but I think that there are elements of this that it's hard to see. It's hard to look past this and see anything too hopeful, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I um, so I, I just wanted to talk about two scenes that I think next to one another kind of illustrate what I'm talking about. Sure. Uh, the, the speed force storm that, that happens when Bruce is crossing the desert. Mwah. That Yes. That is a scene where you don't get you don't get nearly the whole story of what's going on there but it's like the perfect amount for your your imagination to run wild where like first of all the horse getting disintegrated um <laughs> they're yes. very sad and <laughs> gruesome reminiscent but, of the never ending story anybody <laughs> sure yeah 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 um but i love that i love that that jay and barry and bart are they're spinning around in this 
in this tornado. They're whirling just, dervishes. <laughs> yeah, and they just whirl by, and they come like they whirl into the story and then out of it just as quickly. And I hope they never return to that idea because <laughs> if if all you get is that in a post-apocalyptic world, the speed force has all the speedsters stuck in this storm in perpetuity. That is such a creepy and like, I want them to leave it at that. You know, it's such a creepy idea that they're just swirling forever, you know, (laughs) and there's nothing they can do and there's nothing anyone can do, you know, uh, on the flip side, the stuff at that Fort Waller where, uh, the red and the green duked it out. Yep, it's it's overrun by animal men, unknown soldiers, haunted tanks, and Swamp Thing, or the green. Yeah. That, to me, was a little bit too much like, okay, I don't really know what's going on here. Why is this happening? Why are the, cre- why are, like, the, the unknown soldiers, haunted tank stuff? That one I needed a little bit more context for. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm just being stupid or whatever, but it just, to me, it didn't, it didn't tease the mind enough in that creepy way that the speed force storm thing did. Sure. And then, and then almost too much time was spent on it for how little it meant to the story. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it gave you enough of, they call it the last stand of humanity, but I don't think it really gave you enough of that. I agree with that. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's hard to, it's hard to quantify it, but something about that scene next to the perfectly done speedster scene it didn't work as well even though those are both similar ideas yeah i agree yeah um yeah and that i mean it kind of felt like to i mean it was a callback i feel like to snyder's work on swamp thing mm-hmm. which Again, was something that I wasn't particular. I liked his Swamp Thing a lot, and I liked Lemire's Animal Man, but that Rot World crossover was actually pretty similar to this, really, in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, a lot of like really big concepts and big ideas over that 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 were kind of there to create an emotional response or or provoke something, you know, kind of like the speed force storm. Um, You know, that's a concept that's there to provoke an emotional response, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it doesn't really factor into the story much at all. Um, And, and that's kind of how rot world was. It was a lot of big ideas, a lot of like big concepts involving kind of alternate. What if apocalyptic versions of, of DC heroes. And, and that's what this is too. Hmm. That's interesting, Zach. I wouldn't have necessarily made that connection, but I think you're right. Well, Rot World is our next DC3 cast uh, book club, so... I'd be all for that, actually. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we got lots of other books to read before we revisit Rot World. <laughs> I suppose you're right. <laughs> Any other thoughts on this? Um, I'm still actually really looking forward to the last issue because I think that it we'll pull it all together. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I think I agree with that. All right, let's let's dig into Batman Secret Files number two. Um, 
so I was thinking about the way we should cover this one, and I'm thinking, do we just want to each talk about one of these stories that we liked or didn't like? Or let's go through everyone. I I have a thing that I want to ask, like just just put out there about this. A question, sure. really. Go for it. So this this is kind of build as a city of Bane tie-in. I mean, it's not even kind of. That's across the top. <laughs> yes. Um. All you need to know about Summer's biggest story: Who are the villains? Who broke the bat? <laughs> who these is the are, Joker? <laughs> these are stories about characters who will be playing a big role in City of Bane, I assume. But this in no way has anything to do with City of Bane. It seems. <laughs> no, not at all. You are correct, sir. Um, <laughs> there is nothing yes. about City of Bane in this. Which no. is really weird. It makes me... Every single one of these felt like it could have just been a a story, a script that was in a drawer. It's like, yep. oh, go pull a Psycho Pirate story. We need one. Yeah. I mean, to me, like what, what goes to that line of thinking is there's a Patrick Gleason illustrated story here. Gleason's exclusive yeah. to Marvel right now. Yeah. So right. clearly that was done at some other time. <laughs> And dust it off for this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was exactly one of these that I, I liked. you have any idea uh, which one? Same, and I bet it's the same one. I bet it's the same one as me, too. Should we say it all in three? Uh-huh. Okay. All right, just say the character name. Like the, okay. 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 Yeah. One, two, three, Riddler. Hugo Strange. What? <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> You you guys both like the Riddler one, huh? So uh, that one wasn't that one wasn't bad. So full disclosure here, okay? I did not have time to try and solve the riddle that's in that book. I I did, and I think I did. Okay, so I but I love the idea of just like taking a Riddler story and making it into something different than what we were getting elsewhere. Does that make sense? Like it's. It's yeah. truly unique to the Riddler. It was a fun idea, and I wish more. Like in a book like this, why the hell aren't you taking chances like that? You know, it yeah. just seems it just seems to me like a total waste to not. It reminded me, although I did not, um, although I did not go back and solve the riddle. It kind of reminded me of that issue of Grayson, the Future's End issue of Grayson, with the um, what's the name of that code? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, where it was the first yeah. letter of every uh, mm-hmm. every word? Is it the Clue Master's code? Is that what it is? I can't, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's right. But, but anyway, you know, it just reminded me of that kind of a story. So, although I did not mind the Hugo Strange story, I, I preferred the sort of interesting approach to the Riddler here. Same, same. Vince, did you take a stab at the riddle? No, I didn't. So tell, okay. us what, tell us what you found, Zach. So here's what I think it is. So I think the 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 question is why do you need to torment Batman? Um, on the first page, on the can Gotham, I, you can I guess? Yeah. Was there yeah. A ne- there's a negative ten on there? On the field. Neg- oh, oh man, you're going number- to a different place. I went way simpler. There are numbers everywhere. And I thought there that, are numbers everywhere. I'm not saying that's correct. That's just that's sort of how I. Okay. Here's here's what I got. Here's what I got out of it. 
the the U is the only letter left on the field. Then in the uh, uh, whatever, what's that next place that they go to? The cafe. The their name is Kant, which can also be read as Can't. Can't right. You can't. Next page, the playhouse. The lights are only on play. Play. This is. I'm not sure about this part because then you could also then jump straight ahead and say get to those uh, the TV screens that have the numbers on them, and if you like follow the the camera letters with the numbers, it spells out alone. So you could say that it's you can't play alone, but you could also there's like one scene where he's at the corner of Rook and Knight, and right. so I you think if you slot that in, you can't play chess alone. I think you got it, Zach. That's good. That is good. Wow. And that's also super fun. Like, that's what I mean. That's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Yeah. Well, you gave me a new appreciation for this. I just didn't. Uh, I didn't take the time to think about that enough. Um, yeah, that's that's really that's really good. That's the that's the really the like thing that elevated this story is because it gave there was something outside of the story itself that was fun that you you never really get that from riddler stories which is kind of surprising to me right why don't more folks do a riddler story like this yeah it's right there in front of you Mm -hmm. we should mention that marguerite scott is the writer i don't don't know that we so yeah she Yeah. yeah that's Kudos to her. Yeah. Uh, Vince, talk about your Hugo Strange story you adored so I, much. Yeah, I was I was kind of enraptured as soon as I read the the line, uh, only I am strong enough to administer Batman to the sick. <laughs> which is <laughs> which is like the perfect that is such a Steve Orlando line. Yes, it is. Uh I love it. And uh, and I the Eduardo Riso art is so perfect for a story like this because you've kind of got like, so, so Hugo strange has rounded up like five fake Batman and he's testing different things out on them in an effort to, you know, his his thing is always, I'm going to get inside Batman. I'm going to understand Batman, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I love that, like, uh, Risso makes these also, like, gross and schlubby and creepy, and the things that, that Hugo's doing to these different Batman are creepy, you know? Um, I, I think he, I think this is a case of a perfect artistic fit, and, uh, and I love the idea that this is taking that concept of of strange, like poking inside Batman to some really extreme lengths that I'm not sure we've seen before, you know? Yeah. Um, but, it, but it's also, it's, it's ostensibly being done in the name of science, but like no, no sane person would really <laughs> think that they're getting anything out of some of this stuff, you know? Sure. One of the Batman has two grenades, uh, on one grenade on either side of their head. You know, mm-hmm. so like, like, what is that really proving? You know, um, did you guys yeah. notice how 
there is like very clear analogs for a bunch of famous Batman in this. The by the costumes, you mean? Yes. Yeah, to somewhat. Yeah, like one is very clearly like Dark Knight Returns, Batman. Yes. Um, I assume one of them. I think the number one that seems kind of like a Schumacher type Batman it, it, to me. I think it looks a lot like Michael Keaton as well. Okay, so yeah. I, I think it's just supposed to be like nineties film Batman, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah. The, the, those are those are the the big two that are clearly no. referencing something else. I think this one this was a good story. I especially or the concept is really good. The art is really good. I just really like don't like saw type stories, and mm. that's what this was. And so that that kind of turned me off from the get go. But um, I yeah. I can definitely see why you why you liked this one the best. Yeah. And then the other ones were just a big ball and nothing. Oh yeah. Yeah. There was the, one the, line in that Joker story where he, he says, like, is that a joy buzzer? You hack? That, that actually made me laugh out loud. That was a that was a fine joke. Other than that, I had nothing to say about these issues, these stories. Joker's trick. Yes, that is the Joker's trick, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is so this is so nakedly, like, hey, we can sell a ton of stuff that has Batman's name on the front, so let's throw together a... Which is, you know... Whatever. There, it's it's not completely irredeemable. There were a couple nice stories in it, but but at the end of the day, it's kind of clear what it is, you know. Sure. Yeah. Um, like Zach said, it's got really nothing to do with City of Bane or Tom King's Batman or any Batman current continuity stuff to speak of, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think to me. To me, this is just them. They they don't think they can call it an annual. But what what makes this not an annual? You know, they're. I, they're... I think it's just because they just released an annual pretty recently, didn't they? Right. Yeah. Yes. I'm sure <laughs> they did. So. And this is literally them emptying the junk drawer. Yeah. Yep. Man, how many annuals? What percentage of anything from Marvel or DC that has the word annual in it is any good? How many annuals can you remember really enjoying? There was the the Scott Snyder Batman one, if I remember correctly. Yeah, had some, had some interesting stuff in it, but I I think um, honestly, yeah, I think that there was one maybe in Jeff Johns Green Lantern run that was okay. There was that one that had uh-huh. the, the logo of um, it was like it was the Green Lantern equivalent of the Death of Superman packaging where it was like that's the, the one that's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm trying to find this. Um, no, that's not it. There is an annual that I remember buying pretty soon after I got into comics and I'm trying to find it. It was a Justice League annual, so it would, and it would have been in like 2009, 2010, maybe. And it was an anthology. It wasn't an anthology. It was one long story, but it was broken up into small chunks with different characters told by different writers and artists. 
Mm. And and it all told one story. And I, it it wasn't great, but I still like think about that issue every once in a while, um, as something kind of special. I wish I could remember, um. What I'm trying to like find. It would have been like oh oh nine or twenty ten. Probably probably. Mm, Probably 2009, I want to say. Who was I'm writing like, Justice League in 2009? It wasn't. It wasn't the main creative team. Oh, okay. It was. It was like a purely standalone thing, um, which is what made it so interesting. I, I have no idea. I yeah, I can't. Already. I can't find it online anywhere. But uh, maybe, maybe before next episode, I'll try to to track that down. Um, see if I can find it. Oh, no, this isn't it. <laughs> this is not it. Um, yeah, it's interesting. There are like two different kinds of annuals. There are the ones that don't have anything to do with current current storylines. And then there are the ones that um, like tie in very closely to ongoing stories. And sometimes neither work. <laughs> Yeah. This is by far the, uh, I feel like, the worst of both worlds. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's not really connected to anything, but it sort of pretends to be connected to everything. Um, but yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to The Batman Who Laughs, number seven, uh, written by Scott Snyder, illustrated by Jock. With uh, a very, very easy Shining reference cover. <laughs> Here's <laughs> Brucey. <laughs> and in some ways, that's uh, perfectly emblematic of kind of what I what I don't like about this. So start us off then, Vincey. Go for it. I... All right. First of all... Um, Maybe I'm just stupid or lazy or I've lost interest, so I'm not paying attention, but I could barely follow anything that's happening in this issue. There's um, so much crammed into this issue. Uh, yeah. And but almost st- none of it makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so much, but it's not like um, Last Night on Earth where I think there's all these ideas and some are worthy of being explored more. There's just so many ideas and I'm not sure how many of them, if any of them are good, you know, like we've got this like fake little uh, Bruce kid running around that's made out of like fake Bruce blood or something like that. Like what? I believe why I believe that might be an alt universe Bruce. It's an alt universe Bruce. Yeah, I remember them saying that. But but I also I also thought they said something about he was created using i don't know i'm probably mixing up some other part of the issue but you know therein lies the problem there's there's so much here attempting to be like alternate versions of the same thing like to me there's nothing compelling about the batman who laughs versus a bruce wayne who is turning into the Batman who laughs or what, you know, like, is that what's going on? Like, 
they, they don't really look similar. They don't really act similar. I, I'm not really... I, I don't know what the end game is here. Why are, why are they turning Bruce into the, the Batman who... It's just... And then the ending, which we'll get to, is just the, the most obvious thing to end a book like 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 it's the end of the thriller video god damn it (laughs) 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 right am i wrong you start with Um, a shine well you start with the obvious shining reference then you end with the thriller video (laughs) can i make one slight change it's the end of the eat it video Thank you for laughing at that as much as you did. <laughs> this is like when Co- this is like when Conan uh, has Norm Macdonald on it. He he sees that glint in his eye and he knows he's gonna say, "I knew that's where you were going." Oh, really? Okay. Yes, absolutely. And just but but knowing that it it made me laugh harder. You know. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you. Oh God. Anyway, anyway, I I think this is just a mess. And some of the art looks fine. Like, Jock is very talented, and he can make some of this work. But, oh, man, I I don't want to be like everybody else and say I'm just fatigued by the Batman Who Laughs. Because, like, in a vacuum, I'm not fatigued by the Batman Who Laughs as a character yet. As a, as a greater in the greater fabric of uh, the DC universe as it is right now. Like if he shows up in justice league here and there, if he's part of the greater tapestry there, like a part of it, that's fine with me. I, I really didn't need a, a book of this and I really didn't need a s- extra seventh issue. And having read all seven issues, I feel that even more. So like I didn't need any of this. I didn't need uh, Alfred gunning uh, the Batman who laughs down with a shotgun. <laughs> like, well, let's talk I, about the very, very end. Well, not the not the very end. The end of the Batman who laughs versus Bruce battle with the Joker coming to be the one to put the bullet in his head. Uh-huh. Was that the most obvious way this was going to end? I mean, couldn't we have guessed that after the first issue? Yeah, I mean, everything was. I, I guess. Yeah. I... It's just, you know, I just don't get it. Can can I so yeah, I agree with everything that that you all have said, um especially like all all the things you said Vince, but like the thing that was the most egregious in this in this issue was the weird like circular logic argument that Bruce and and Alfred had at the end about this must be the Joker making things easier for me. Yeah. I just yeah. I just don't understand what the point of that was. And this is this is also like very campy. And if that's what Snyder is going for, then maybe that's actually good, like cool. Like the like the thing about the the syringe and the light. Um you know, it's going to turn red, and that means the evil plan is complete, but Bruce makes it just look like it's supposed to be red, but it's actually still green, and 
it it feels very like dark multiverse batman 66 in a way um <laughs> but i don't really know if that's what he's going for and i almost i wish that's what he was going for i yeah i just don't think it pulls that if that's what it is going for it doesn't pull it off i don't think no and and then i think jock is like the not the right artist for it if yeah. that's yeah. yes yeah which it's i'm a, a huge i'm a huge fan of jock but if yes. that's what you're going for it's not yeah and it's also just so weirdly pessimistic at the end about you know who batman is and what his purpose is and if his his um his mission is is righteous or not you know if he is good which i feel like everything that snyder has ever done with batman has usually been um affirmative i guess in that way so this this kind of sticks out and very tonally dissonant and I, i don't really understand how he wants this to fit in with his his greater bat work, you know, Mm -hmm. to me, this felt very much like Snyder wanting to, what's the word I'm looking for? He wanted to connect a bunch of stuff from his bat run thus far into one place, but I don't necessarily think that it does anything to enhance anything from the past. Like usually mm-hmm. when you have a story like that where you're you're connecting all of the disparate elements of your of your past, there's a payoff at the end that feels like, okay, we've been building to this for a very long time. But there was no build there was no payoff at the end of this, was there? No. No. And in fact it leaves it leaves Bruce in a really weird place that I assume Snyder is not gonna pick up on. Um, maybe Williamson will, um, this just re this is just a, a weird lead in to the Batman Superman series. Yeah. Yeah. That is weird. Part of it also feels like it wants to be a piece of the, uh, justice league justice versus doom thing because Bruce at the end talks about like the, the nature of man, you know? Right. And like, whether whether we're truly good or whether we can or whether we can surpass what's expected of us, you know. Um, but again, it just feels like a much messier, sloppier version of that. I think. Yeah. And you know, I. You know, on this show, we are all big fans of Snyder. And we're also big shills for Snyder a lot of times. And part of that is is certainly earned. And part of that is because he's always been very, very good to us, both as a show and as a site. And I don't want it to come off as sounding like we're uh, like we give him an easier pass because of that. But I also I think that Snyder is one of those guys that a lot of times when he starts something, I don't love where it's going. And then it builds into something that I'm much more excited by. Like I think that even his Justice League run right now, I'm enjoying his Justice League run now way more than I was in the first six months of it. Would you guys agree with that? Mm, no, I really liked the first six months a lot. 
I I, the middle stuff maybe okay well, um okay yeah i i loved those that first arc i thought it was like fantastic then i felt like it took a dip um and then yeah yep that's okay. that's how i felt sure but yeah I, I guess i was saying that that first arc took like two months because <laughs> it was double shipping and it was like a four or five issue arc true True. So, yeah. So, uh, I, I, but regardless, we're saying the same thing, right? Yeah. So yeah. I, I think sometimes Snyder, with a nice long story, at the end of it, you feel like, okay, now I see why all those things were happening earlier in the book, and I just came to the end of this and just didn't feel like there was that satisfaction at all. Yeah. So, yeah. Let's hope he, um, uh, he's on to bigger and better things after this. I uh, I found the issue I was talking about. Okay. What it wasn't it? an annual. It was an 80-page giant, so that's oh, why I was having okay. trouble finding it. But listen, this is such a weird time capsule thing. I'm, I'm not going to take up too much time, but I'm going to break this down for you. So this was a, a one-off time travel thing with Epoch and Time Commander as the villains. Listen to these creative teams. Rex Ogle and Mamed Osrar did the main story. Um, we had a Green Lantern and Red Arrow team up by JT Kroll and Adrian Sayef. Uh, Vixen and Green Lantern, Rich Fogel and Eric J. I don't know who that is. Uh, Zatanna and Black Canary by Josh Williamson and Bit. Um, Green Arrow and Firestorm by Chuck Kim and Moritat. Uh, Steel and Wonder Woman by Derek Ferdolfs and John Buran, and then Superman and Dr. Light by Mandy McCurry and Dak Sean. Wow. That, is that sounds bizarre, really cool. Yeah, but that is a bizarre group of uh, of creators. I know. I, like, I, I didn't realize that Josh Williamson was doing DC stuff in, this was 2009. Yeah, he had done a couple of issues of that Superman Batman series. Okay. Around that time, I believe. Um, but yeah, that is a fascinating look back at uh, 2009 in DC Comics. Ten years ago. Yeah. Boy. Do we think overall DC Comics was considerably better ten years ago? Or is that just nostalgia speaking? <sighs> Uh, I mean, it was better than it was. It, I feel like we're still lumping what's going on right now in with the, the new 52, even subconsciously. <laughs> sure. You know what I mean? I think right now DC is in a, a really nice place, even if we have some misgivings about certain corners of it. Right. Which I think I think they would just be different corners back then, you know? Yeah. Would you agree, Zach, or? Um, yeah, no, I think I would. It, it's really weird because I definitely have a different viewpoint of comics and DC now than I did 10 years ago. Um, yeah, I really, I, I feel like I'm too biased to even begin to speak about it. I don't know. <laughs> okay, well. Let's move over to the Green Lantern Annual Number One, written by Grant Morrison, illustrated by Giuseppe Camicoli. Uh, guys, this isn't very good. It's kind of okay. I have a question, and 
because I I don't feel like I necessarily understood what was supposed to be happening in this issue, and so your perception may change how I feel about it. <laughs> Did the things in this issue happen, or were they all stoned? Vince? They happened. Did they? Were, they? they, they I think so. Were they drugged? I think they were drugged to be knocked out. They okay. were not necessarily drugged to hallucinate or right, imagine. Yes, yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that uh, that's the way I read it. Okay. And that, also, and, and that 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 this was supposed to be some viral prank by uh, by Hip Jordan. Yeah. And and it it just went wrong because like this villain. Okay. Happened happened to be interfering in the um, Wi-Fi or whatever. Sure. Sure. Say. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, I I will say, the thing I liked about this a lot is that it brought back, um characters that Morrison introduced in his short flash run that he did with Mark yeah. Millar. Yeah, the Sonic the Hedgehog. Uh... Yeah, yeah. The like, yeah, just typical 90s video game character. Um, <laughs> Extreme to the max. Yeah, um, I loved that. And also like Morrison deep cut to bring back Airwave too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, as just a thing that we're all supposed to know and, and <laughs> well, recognize. Well, if, you, if you've read 1,000 issues of Detective Comics, <laughs> Airwave had a prominent backup uh, back in the 50s or 60s in that book. Right, but then then he was Hal's uncle, right? Yeah. And now he's his yes, cousin. Yes, now he's his cousin? Or nephew or nephew? something. Also, yeah. isn't it weird there's a character named Hal Jr. that isn't Hal's kid? Yeah. Like, <laughs> usually that would just be you both be named Hal. Like, Hal's, a Hal's a very famous uncle, though. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? <laughs> famous uncle. Uh, I, I, well, I have a new also, aspiration in life to be a famous uncle one day. So, but also <laughs> apparently Hal, Hal, so Airwave was also a Hal Jordan back in the day. Well, yeah, Harold Jordan, though, I believe. Well, yeah, but if so, if you look on the DC wiki, he's listed as Hal Jordan, like yeah. they call him Hal Jordan. But yeah, he right. is Harold. Right. Um, what is Hal's given name? Harold, actually. Yeah, it's the same thing. That's what Hal's It is the for. same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's almost it's almost like Wallace and Wally, though, where like. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It, it is like where where they, no, they right. more I'm, often. I'm yeah, yeah. 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 OK. All right. Yeah. Yeah, it is very weird. It's very Morrisonian to to pull from that. Uh, even the character of Hip Jordan is um, <laughs> taken from 1969's. Hang on, I have this written down somewhere. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> uh, Green Lantern issue 71. Hip Hip Jordan uh, believes he's discovered the identity of the Green Lantern. There was some weird stuff in here that I assume Morrison is pulling from other issues, but there was a whole plot where is it 
oh, who who is um who is his brother that was in Green Lantern a lot uh, in in John's Green Lantern? Yeah. Oh. Uh, Here, uh, I'm pulling up the Jordan family. Uh, is it <laughs> Jim? Jim Jordan? How like? Yeah, Jim his Jordan. wife only married say, him because <laughs> Jim Jordan. <laughs> no, no. His wife only Ooh. married him because she thought he was Green Lantern. Yes. And... Yeah, which which I believe is a plot. I think that's. I think that is something that happened in like the golden age or something. It is. It's, it's right here. Yes. Reporter, reporter Sue Williams believed that he was secretly Green Lantern because of the connection to his brother. <laughs> <laughs> now, I haven't read all of like the, the golden and silver age Green Lantern stuff. But from what I gather, from what I have read, that book more than more than like Superman, more than Batman, more than Wonder Woman is so much about like Hal trying to hide his identity and pass it off to like, it gets passed off to family members or other people. He tries to get (laughs) other people to believe that other people are green lantern. And it's so much of it is like screwball comedy dating stuff with with him and Carol. It's the adventures of Superman, the TV show. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, That that entire series is just uh, Clark trying to throw people off the scent that he's Superman. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That sounds right. Um, man, Morrison is, uh, we'll talk about this again when we talk about the next issue of Green Lantern on, on the next episode, but, um, oh, I what? just thought of something, keep going. But, but Morrison is pulling shit for this series. Things that were only in one issue of yeah. a golden age comic. I mean, and... Zine Arrow is one of those things. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. It's just insane to me how this man's and and again, why don't why doesn't every writer do that? Because you've got this entire history of DC Comics to mine from, and it's not as if Morrison is doing it in a way where you're completely confused if you don't know exactly what he's talking about. Right. Like you don't you don't need to know the prior story about Hip Jordan trying to figure out who if Hal is Green Lantern or not to use him as a character in this story. You know, I, I wish writers would just pick and choose these weird things from the past and bring them back. And they don't even have to use them in the same way that they were used before. Just, just incorporate those elements in and, and build on this rich history. And then for people that do know the history of it or can spot this stuff, it's like a little fun extra. But here's my ah. point with this issue, right? Okay. I yeah. feel like all of that is true. And there was a lot of fun, in the Jordan family dynamics, mm-hmm. everything else I thought was really lackluster in this issue. Yeah. And I think that Kevin Coley's art is just not a great fit for this story. And like, there were tons of times where I was like, wait a minute, is that how Jordan? Cause he looks exactly the same as everybody else. And there's no distinguishing features about anyone in this book. Well, that's just because the Jordans are all a very generic, <laughs> indistinguishable family yeah (laughs) but no i your point stands um uh no you're right and i think you know i again i'm gonna mention it again the annual format that dc insists on is a big culprit here because i think if you if you distill this down into a 20 page issue that's kind of a one-off of the sort that morrison and sharp have been doing with this series yep then you're probably fine. This book is probably a lot better. But over 40 pages, 
it feels so padded out. The art does get a little sloppy. I, I think it's just this didn't need to be 40 pages. And I, I don't know that it's the creator's fault. I, I think it's almost just DC's or editorial's fault for insisting that annuals be done this way, you know? Yeah. Um, here's maybe a fun conversation to have just for two minutes here. What would we want to see annuals be? I actually think we've done this on the show before. Have we? Yeah, I, I think, think so a long, a long time ago, like maybe even before Rebirth started. I, I'm really just fine not having annuals, honestly. <laughs> I'm fine not having annuals, but my my preferred, if we did have an annual, my preferred uh, form would probably be more like a Batman Secret Files thing, but like with a higher quality of story. Like, um, let's say, let's say an annual is still 40 pages, have a 20 page main story, have two 10 page bonkers backups. Just so, so you want what the flash 75 did last time. Yeah, that wasn't bad in concept. I think, I think again, the execution was a little weak, but like in concept, that main story is the size of a normal story and it continues what this writer has been doing. And, and that in concept is fine. And then two backups that maybe hint at what's to come or fill out some of the universe that the writer's currently sort of kind of crafting or working in. I think that's preferable to just one oversized issue that feels like it had no business being that long. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. Yeah. I, I can think of, there aren't a heck of a lot of annuals that I like, but I think if I remember correctly, the annuals that I do like tend to fit that bill a little more than just being one oversized story. I'm think there were some Spider-Man ones that I liked in the past. I know um, that that did that where like the main story was written. I'm thinking of a Dan slot one where Dan slot wrote the main story and it was very much within the business that he had been doing at the time. And then there were maybe three or four backups to that. And some of them had some adventurous art to them. Some of them were just fun little diversions, but it didn't feel like this thing that, that existed just to stretch a 20 page story into 40 pages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I concur with that. Yeah. I think I think mine would may I don't I I'm gonna say this kind of idealistically, but I would I would say <laughs> you gotta say it. I gotta say it. You gotta I, post it. Too fucked up, too raw. Too yeah. Um, <laughs> kind of what DC used to do, um, and what Marvel actually kind of does a lot now, where you have a grouping of annuals that all go together to tell one story. So mm -hmm. like annuals as a mini event, I oh, think okay. is kind of a fun thing, like a standalone thing. So, um, you know, DC would do like the themed annuals or Marvel will take three characters, give them an annual and have it, the three issues together, tell a story involving those, those characters. Um, usually all written by the same, at least the same writer and maybe like different artists. Um, 
which I think is kind of a fun thing um, to do. You know, it's outside of the main story. So if, if you you don't have to feel compelled to, to read it or, or seek it out if you're just following the main series. But if it's a, a character you like or a creator that you like, then it could be just a fun little one-off story um, that might be three or four issues long. Yeah, I like that too. That's... So, like, say say we had a, a – so this week um, we had – what did we have? We had Justice League Dark, Green Lantern, and um, – was there another annual? Red Hood and the Outlaws. Red Hood Outlaw. Red News. Hood Outlaw. So imagine instead of getting the three annuals we got, we got some kind of bizarro team-up thing between those three properties all written by – I don't know, Tom Taylor. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a good idea. DC used to do that a lot with things like Guerrilla Warfare mm-hmm. and, yeah. um, you know, Armageddon 2001. Those were all events in a similar vein like that, where it was told through, sometimes it was a miniseries and annuals or just annuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm all for that. What's fun and frustrating about that is when you're doing shit like I'm doing for the chronicles of shazam for my summer binge and you get like <laughs> yeah. one random annual you're reading in a in a run that you have no idea how it fits into anything else because <laughs> you don't want to read all 20 issues of it so you just read the one on the book you're reading and then you have no idea what's happening mm-hmm. yeah. man comics were wild back then yes they were yes they were um all right, so we're going to take a break now. When we come back, we're going to debut our newest segment again. Not not debut it, uh, but bring back our 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 fan favorite section, the uh, <laughs> the Hick Cast. I guess that's what we're calling. We don't even have a name for it. But we're talking about Powers of Ten, number one, the newest John of the Hickman uh, Marvel books. If you're not interested in this, we gave you a full show. Enjoy. If you're reading Powers of Ten, stick around. We'll be back in just a minute. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed, like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commanding. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinborough, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe. Subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow on iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. Welcome back to the Powers of Ten cast. My name is Brian. With me, as always, are Vince and Zach. We are going to talk about Powers of Ten number one, released on July 31st, 2019. Written by Jonathan Hickman. Illustrated by um, oh, why am I blanking on his name right at this very moment? RB RB Silva. RB Silva of, of uh, Super uh, Superboy fame. Superboy fame. Yeah, Lovedell <laughs> Superboy. Yeah. yeah, I actually really like his art in general. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, oh, it's really good. Yeah, yeah, he's excellent. Uh, our friend Walt Richardson said this issue gave him um, Stuart Immonen new X Men vibes, mm-hmm. and that's like the highest compliment Walt can give any human being. So. <laughs> That's uh, that's a very good thing. So um, let me just put this out there before we get into it. I'll probably be yelled at for this, but I'm going to put it out there. 
I like this issue quite a bit. I liked it considerably less than House of X. House of I... X, I love, love, love. This I really enjoyed. It's a good issue, and I think this series will be very interesting, but I really, en- I think House of X number one is, a, to me, a much more complete comic. I, I agree with you. Okay. Thanks. You're welcome. Vince? I have a caveat to that, though. Yeah. Yeah, because I... I, I... Oh, I I think that the um the like interstitial print material in this is better. Oh, that's interesting. I think I... the world building is really good in this issue. You know, you're so. I I almost want to agree, except that like, okay, as a straight comic book the way it's told and everything everything that goes into making a comic book i liked the first issue more mm-hmm. this issue blew my mind harder okay I, and i, will, and I, will I love that. that yes yeah. i will agree with that but i think that as like an enjoyable reading experience i would rather read house of x than this i think and so but go i ahead, think house Doug. of x had some like bigger moments too in a way not bigger as in like in terms of scope and grandness because this issue like <laughs> blows house of x away in that <laughs> right, way right it's the small moments in house of x like the magneto parts and the parts mm-hmm. with cyclops cyclops and the fantastic four yeah um the gravity in that which is really appealing to me yes um i had texted vince because Zach had not read it yet, that the first like comic page was the most Hickman thing ever with the X-Men Year One, The Dream, X-Men Year 10, The World, X-Men Year 100, The War, X-Men Year 100, Year 1000, Ascension. Mm-hmm. Like that right there, that is like Hickman Comics in one page right there. It's uh, it's so great. And, and also to build on something Vince just said earlier, I think it might have been off air, but comparing Hickman to to Morrison, um, you know, this it's evocative of the Morrison four panel thing from All-Star Superman, but yeah. in a way that is distinctly Hickman, like yeah. Morrison would not necessarily do like th- those would not be the panels in, a, in the Morrison comic necessarily. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, so this book takes place across various timelines. Um, and was there, well, I guess my, I'll ask the question first. Was there one that you guys enjoyed the most? I think definitely the year 100. Yeah. Oh, Which was God. also the bulk of the issue. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, so I enjoyed how the year 10 stuff tied in with last issue. Mm-hmm. But there was so little of that that it's hard to say that was my favorite part because that's really a very small scene. Right. I want to talk about the year one stuff, and I'm afraid because one of us here has peeked me on the veil and uh, may know things. 
I won't tip. I, I promise I won't tip anything. Um, I, I think the year 100 stuff is the best stuff in this issue because of how, like you said, uh, Zach, the interstitial material, but also, also just the comic part itself, how deftly it tells a story with completely new characters you haven't met before. And yet you feel like you understand them all and, and their role in things. And the way Hickman doles out that information in a way that c- continues to move the action forward. Uh, I mean, they're literally fighting uh, like a sentinel or sentinels as all this information is being doled out to us. You know, mm-hmm. nobody's, nobody's stopping to explain everything in a bunch of talking heads, you know, you get to see this stuff in action in a way that's really dynamic. Um, so that that is my favorite sequence too. But I must say that opening sequence with the year one stuff, uh, where Moira sits sits down uh, next to um, Charles Charles <laughs> uh, on the on the bench. That was so. Like, it's so understated, but it's so dramatic and so unsettling almost. And you have no reason to be unsettled, you know? But, like, every sentence that either of them says seems to carry weight with it, you know? Can I say a weird issue that reminded me of? Sure. Just the, like, the setting and a little bit about it, the multiversity Pax Romana. Ah, uh, issue. Interesting. Yeah, that, that's not Pax Romana. Pax Americana. Pax Americana. Yeah, I knew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right. Uh-huh. Um, so you you know, before the series came out, Hickman tweeted the page that's the five panels of Charles and and Moira kind of back and forth without any text, and said that it is the most important moment in X Men history. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> Zach, you're walking. You're walking right into it. I know, I know, I know. Um, I don't want you to tell me anything, but I did want to talk about the theory that you had promoted after this issue came out. Um, Which is what, Vince? Tell the listeners who are texting you slash following you on uh, on Farmers Only. Yeah. Um. There was a, oh god I don't want to talk about this now. Um, <laughs> no, just talk about it, but pretend you didn't. Read the I know, issue. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. There was a theory. There was a theory waltzing around online, and and um, ah gosh, I'll never be able to find it at this point. But um, somebody had suggested that maybe uh, Charles here is Moira, and and or an alternate version or some sort of, but, but that they are essentially the same person in some way, um, based on the facial structure displayed, the, the way their eyebrows are, their eyes, you know, they're practically identical in these panels. Um, which is, which is a really fascinating. There were a couple other things they had added to that, for support, but I, I can't remember them and I don't want to misquote. Um, so if somebody wants to dig around online, they can probably find it. Um, but, uh, but that's, that's a, that was a really intriguing theory. And I think it speaks to the way that Hickman 
you know, the trust that we all have in Hickman in general to throw us curveballs so much that we are coming up with theories and we're thinking about things that, you know, we wouldn't normally think about if it were some other run-of-the-mill writer, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Is that, is that what you wanted, Zach? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so um, <laughs> the the user on Twitter who first proposed this this theory is uh, at U Zion Main. There you go. U Z I O N M A I N. Um, so go check that out if you want to. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, th- this book is this book is incredibly ambitious and a really interesting corollary to House of X number one because as as menacing as House of X number one was at times, specifically like some of the Magneto stuff and the Cyclops conversation about uh, Franklin, you know, um, Franklin Richards, not Franklin the puppet from Arrested Development. Um, <laughs> Uh, what you know, it was a very hopeful issue in sort of how mutant kind is looking right now, right? And this issue is almost the exact opposite of that. It's a very pessimistic view at how everything shapes up. You know, uh, we we want to believe that everything's going to work out well with Charles and his plan for mutant kind, but this issue shows that even if things work out in the short term, long term things are never going to really work out work in his favor and not that you i mean it would be a very boring comic if issue if year 100 and year 1000 were both just like idyllic tranquility right um Mm -hmm. but i think it's just a really interesting thing to do to make one book so hopeful and one book just so not yeah well i think you know Part of that is that is that's sadly the way that humanity works, where like every time we think we make pro, I don't want to get, I don't want to get too overtly political or anything here, but like, you know, we think we're making progress as a country, and then something happens that's an attempt to undo that or set that back, or subverted in some way or, or or we realize we didn't come as far as we thought or whatever you know that's a that's a thing that happens and it's a greater commentary on like uh if you think about house of x number one there was the idea that um all these different factions like shield and uh sword and etc cetera, etc cetera, even um even hydra I believe Hydra had a small percentage of that wedge, right? Yep. We're we're building a coalition to be a mutant watchdog, right? Well, when you've got the U.S. government working directly with Hydra, right, in the fiction of this world, that's pretty serious, and nobody's talking about it, you know? Right. Um, even if it's just in some small way. It's like enemies have found a common enemy. How does it go? The enemy uh, of my enemy is my friend. N- yeah, no, I was thinking of, um, uh, Judeo seashells. No, by the seashore. Oh, oh no, no. Judeo Christianity. Yeah, I, I never, I heard, never the word. heard the word, uh, enemies for centuries until there was a third. 
that's that's what it is. Tie back. Yeah. <laughs> to to our fans' favorite episode of the DC three cast. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean that's what it is, and it's it's really dire to see that play out because we get to we get to zoom into the future and see how that works out for the mutants in Powers of Ten, um, which is uh, yeah, you're right. That's it's really pessimistic, but it's also in some ways realistic, you know. Oh yeah, and I think that Hickman, you know duality is a big part of Hickman's writing. I mean, if you read the Manhattan Projects, like there are two distinct color, color schemes used in that book to show like the good and the bad intentions of people, right? So yeah, blue and red, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you know, duality is a big part of his writing to begin with. So I'm not surprised that this is a big part of this story, but, you know, it's it, certainly it's compelling. Also, yeah, it is. And it's also interesting how... Yeah, so in, in House of X number one, we're presented with this kind of bright, hopeful new beginning. In this issue, we see how that all goes awry or will go awry. But we're also told things that happen in between that we haven't seen yet, but that at face value are kind of like, well, obviously that was going to happen because they decided to side with mr sinister <laughs> you know it's like yep. which is a really interesting thing um to be given that information after the fact or to see both the beginning and the end point and then to be given that information as backstory and now we'll probably see the events leading to that in one of these series um and it'll be interesting to see Hickman explain why, like, the characters thought that that was a good idea at mm. that point. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well said. It just all um, feels so intentional. And, and there's just so much to wonder you know like you have these adam and eve characters at the end of the book and you don't i mean are are they humans are they mutants does this tie into anything at all with the opening pages of house of x with um supposedly xavier birthing those new x-men um so many questions yeah and I think I think the way that Hickman achieves it is by asking questions about the essential nature of the X-Men that have existed since their invention. You know, he's going straight back to uh, Charles Xavier's dream for a future for mutants, right? He's exploring that right from the get-go and 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 using really all of the X-Men's history to find different avenues that that could have gone down, you know? Yep. There's no telling that this that what we see in Powers of 10 is the definitive future of the X-Men. I, I was right? going to talk about that in a minute, so I'm glad you're bringing this up. Sure. Even within his own run. It's not necessarily the future of his own run, you know? Right. 
it could be that what we're seeing in Powers of Ten is only Powers of Ten, and what we'll see throughout the like Wave One, Wave Two of these books that are coming are all the different ways they're going to either avoid this, steer into it, steer away from it, you know. But what it does do is it takes these essential elements of mutants in the MCU and MCU meaning the Marvel Comics universe, not the Marvel Cinematic <laughs> Universe. Just saying. Yeah. For those out there. And what is it? What is it? MU 616? Is that what I in should be saying? In the 616, yes. In the 616. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I'm a DC boy. We uh, but uh, but yeah, just these essential questions, and then finding different paths to go down, different angles to take, and uh, and that makes everything feel so classical and operatic, while also being really new and bonkers and weird, and it has it both ways, you know. Yeah, what I was gonna say is that you know Hickman is using the future. In a very, um, in a very fluid way. Like I don't think that it ever. One of the things that bugs me with comic runs when people say like, "This is the definitive future for this character." No, it's not. Those things yeah. do not exist. It never happens in comics. And I think Hickman is playing with that very idea in what he's doing here, and that's amazing. And that's why he's Jonathan Hickman, and we're just schmucks. <laughs> Yeah. Um, we should probably talk about R.B. Silva's art a little bit. Yeah. Yes. Oh, it's good. It's really good. It's really good. I I think um, it's a st- even though it's not exactly the same, it's a stylistic fit with uh, Pepe Larraz from the week before. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially think- in that year ten section. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and they both do kind of fit into the Stuart Eminent camp. Mm-hmm. Which is good. Um, I it kind of makes me a a little sad that we're not seeing that kind of stylistic, um, that kind of style carried into the main X Men book. Yeah. Um, Lionel yep. U is. Is sometimes sometimes I do like his work. Um, I I didn't really care for it on Hickman's Avengers run, um, but it is a pretty stark jump uh, from this. Yeah, it's very different. Same with Simon Kudransky on yeah whatever book he's doing, Marauders or whatever. He's on uh, he's on the Fallen Angels one. Oh, okay. uh, Brian Hill. Brian Hill, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it'd be nice if, if the whole thing kind of kept a a similar stylistic tone, but I, you know, I'm sure it'll all work out. Um, I like, I like the, yeah, this, yeah. Um, imminent's a good, good comparison, I think. And I think I like that for my big, important eventy, type books um a lot of times when people say event book they think more of like a like a hitch style or a or a a lionel U style um but i like these like clean expressive 
I, I feel like the work that Arby Silva does in that year one stuff to just convey this very simple conversation on a bench with all this dramatic heft and weight and perspective, you know, their eyes are darting from one place to another as they talk and just all the perfect choices are made there to, to convey exactly how weighty this conversation is supposed to come across to you. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't understand why it's the most important conversation in X-Men history yet. Right. You know, but you will Zach (laughs) very soon. Pretty soon. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think this is a good place to wrap it up. What do you guys think? Sure. All right. Well, thank you as always for listening, everybody. We we truly appreciate it. We especially appreciate the fact that the last episode where we dove into uh, House of X was our biggest episode in six months. So <laughs> maybe people want to hear us talk about Hickman. I don't know, but uh, maybe we should stop doing a DC show. Like... Shut up. <laughs> This is our brand, baby. No, I know. I love DC. I'm a DC boy. We're all DC boys. B-O-I's, of course. B-O-I's. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, go to multiversitycomics.com. Zach's doing a really fun uh, series on One Piece right now. What are you on, Zach, this week? Volume 9 you just came out with? Volume 9 just came out, yeah. And it was my favorite one so far. How many more are you doing this summer? So I'm got two more full volumes that I'm covering and then the last week will actually be the 100th chapter and a fun little uh, recap exercise that I'm going to do to close out. Cool. That's very fun. Um, If you want to find more about us on the internet, you can follow Zach and I on Twitter. I'm at Brian Needs a Nap. And I'm at Wilker Fox. And uh, if you need to get in touch with Vince... He's currently speaking to himself in drag on a park bench. I don't know how he's doing it. It's, it's mirrors. I don't know what it is, but he's uh, he is he is tricking himself that he has not met himself yet. Joker's trick. It it is truly it is truly Le Joker Man's trick. So <laughs> we'll be back next time. Just a pod with you <laughs> oh, oh. is everything I need. Oh, oh. Before this pod is through, I think I'll shame you too. <laughs> I'm so happy when you pod with me.